0: If you want to enhance your longevity, and especially if you want to enhance your health span, I'm more interested in health span than lifespan. Walking will get you a reasonable amount, but in order to really improve your health span, you need moderate to vigorous physical activity, MVPA. And that's what the recommendations are.
1: Welcome to the Proof Podcast, a space for science based conversation exploring the health and longevity benefits. They come with mastering nutrition, physical exercise, mindfulness, recovery, sleep, and alignment. Facts, nuance, and trustworthy recommendations, minus the hyperbole. Howdy friends, great to be here with you. I'm Simon Hill, and you're listening to The Proof. A little bit about me, I'm a qualified physiotherapist and nutritionist with an undergraduate science degree and a master's in the science of human nutrition. My passion is talking science and helping make sense of it for everyday folks wanting to live a healthier, more fulfilling life. Today I sit down with exercise physiologist, nutritionist, and neuroscientist Paul Taylor to continue delving into all things exercise, a new theme that we've been exploring together on this show over the last month or so. This episode builds on previous episodes with one major goal, to consolidate our learning so far and leave you with solid practical information that you can use to better your own personal exercise regime, improve your health, lower your risk of chronic disease, and set yourself up to live longer. Please do enjoy. This is my conversation with Paul Taylor. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor Or you can use a service like inside tracker the nice thing about inside tracker is they make the process super convenient you can organize their phlebotomist a person who draws blood to come to your house or office to do the blood draw a few days later your results show up in the inside tracker app and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal normal or optimal i've checked inside tracker's lifestyle recommendations specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter a meal. meal is a plant based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750mg of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating 2-3 to pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. All righty. So take two, Paul Taylor. <laughs> Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me on this miserable day. It's making an Irishman feel very at home.
1: Yes. Um, we spoke earlier. We're uh, in the middle of the third La Nina. Yeah year in a row here in uh sydney so um it's been tough It's been different sydney's Mm. used to very very predictable weather yeah sunny conditions so um reminding me of growing up in melbourne
0: yes and and i can't help i i was doing a breakfast talk this morning and i i I did have to rather smugly comment on the fact that every time i come to sydney now it's raining Um, whereas in Melbourne, we actually had the best summer mm. uh, that I have experienced in 17 years last year. Yes. So.
1: so I heard from my brother, <laughs> constantly yeah, day. reminding me that. <laughs> yes. Um, anyway, um, thanks for doing this. Pleasure. We had a, a, a Zoom call uh, about a month ago now. Mm, yeah. Um, I was in Bali and we connected and… Yep. Um, it was a great conversation. I was really amazed with all of the information that you have to share about exercise and um topic that we've been exploring on the show over the last month or so. I'm not sure if you caught any of those yep. uh episodes, but um I thought with your background, exercise physiology, nutrition, neuroscience, um you could really help us further explore this and and help make many of the the kind of learnings um, that we've touched on so far really accessible for people and and practical yep um so i kind of wanted the focus of this episode to be for the for the general person yeah so not necessarily the superstar athlete yeah yeah um i mean they anyone can really benefit from this information but um you know that avatar that i'm thinking about is is someone who's perhaps early 40s or in their 50s and they're they're really looking at their lifestyle and their behaviors, and when it comes to exercise, they're looking at it and thinking, "What what can I fit in, into a week?" Yes. Firstly, um, and 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 then from there, how should I structure it so that I am lowering my risk of chronic disease and and hopefully being able to live a longer life? Yeah. Um, so I thought that could be sort of the focus of of today's episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell me how how you kind of have landed in in this space where you are now so i, I just mentioned your sort of academic background mm. you've done a lot um and and on top of that professional boxing um where where did all of this come from in terms of your own career path and sort of passion for all things health and wellness, and particularly a kind of focus on exercise?
0: Yeah, so look, look it started at, at university. I did I did my master's degree in exercise science, and, and, and then I went a bit sideways and I joined the military. So I spent eight years in, in the British military flying in helicopters, doing anti-submarine warfare, Helicopter search and rescue. I did went through combat survival and resistance to interrogation training and all of that fun stuff.
1: Resistance to interrogation resistance
0: training. Resistance to interrogation training. Yes. Wow,
1: that would have been interesting.
0: That was 10 days of pretty hardcore stuff mm-hmm. that they don't do anymore because of health and safety.
1: What kind yeah. of things were they putting you through?
0: So so basically we, we rocked up... Um, you're told to bring one set of all of your, your basically winter flying gear and um, and they gave us a brief and then said right well tomorrow morning we're getting up at 6 a.m so make sure you get a good night's sleep They then it's about half past 11 and then we went to bed and got woken up about half past midnight and um, rather rudely woken up uh, and then dragged out taken taken out to this place and introduced to fred who's a 16-stone dummy, I don't know, what's it, it, 120 kilos, something Mm. like that, and they told us, big boy, big boy, and they said, Fred um, is injured, you guys have got to get him out of here, got to get him to a Kazivak place where he's going to be evacuated, but, um, uh, you know, typical war scenario, this is a really hot place, you can't take him here, you're going to have to carry him, and we had to carry him for about 10 kilometers, and had to do a river, or a, uh, a crossing through a lake, were, and it was winter in the UK, and the way you get across a lake in winter is you mm-hmm. get into the Bufty Boo uh, and you put all your clothes in. They g- All they gave us was a Gore-Tex bivy bag, so it's like a, a covering for a sleeping bag that's mm-hmm. waterproof, but there's n- no in it. So you put all your clothes in it, catch them around, it, and then you build had to build a raft, and then you swim across in the Bufty Boo. <laughs> It was my first exposure to cold water uh, ex- ex- exposure. And, mm. and we may touch on that later yeah, on. But, but then, then they thrashed the life out of us. Um, and then they showed us that afternoon how to make a tactical basha, which is where you sleep if you're on the run. And basically, you find the biggest, thorniest bush you can and you kick your way into it. And that's where we slept um, in this Gore-Tex baby bag. Then we did a night navigation exercise. Um, we are supposed to have dinner and they said, oh, sorry guys, um, there's been a problem, there's no dinner coming, so instead we'll do a night navigation mm. exercise and, and this went on and on and basically, over the 10 days, we walked, I reckon somewhere between 250 and 300 kilometers.
1: Did anyone give up or did everyone kind of get uh, through There was that? a few people who quit.
0: Mm. Um, there was a few people who had to redo the course, which is, <laughs> getting to the end of it is pretty... Was it the physical uh, demand or was it the mental? The mental. Right. And it's... So, in those 10 days, the only food they gave us was a chicken between four people, and it was alive when we got it, mm. um, and, and we were massively sleep deprived. it was so cold. It's in winter in the UK, no sleeping bag, you're so tired, and you fall asleep, and then wake up shivering your mm. ass off, right? And then, the second five days, so the, five days, they, the first five days, they thrashed the life out of you physically, And, um, then they teach you some skills and then you have five days of escape and evasion where you're actually hunted by a hunter force. And then at the end of all of that, when we thought it was all over, we got introduced to the shock of capture, um, which is basically getting a bit of a kicking, getting bagged Mm. and tagged. And, And then we ended up going through, um, interrogation. Um, we had stress positions the entire time. It was probably about 12 hours stress positions are just horrendous Mm. we were in a room we were hooded so you couldn't Ah. see i thought it was in a room of my own there was white noise you know that when the radio was Mm -hmm. off station probably at the volume you would hear music in a nightclub Mm. and so and it just puts you uh, under enormous amounts of stress and then we were dragged out every now and then and interrogated
1: to see if you could stand up and respond if you were captured by an enemy or something correct and
0: and it's basically what the military term stress inoculation training. And it's actually mm-hmm. relevant to, to what we're going to speak mm-hmm. about. But after that, and, and, and you know, those, the, the interrogators are professional mm-hmm. interrogators and, and they're very, very
1: good, right? right? And
0: they bring everybody to their breaking point. Stress
1: inoculation. Yeah. Okay. So when you say that's relevant to, to what we're going to talk about, is that when we spoke and caught up, you, you mentioned that exercise and the stress of exercise mm. can help you be more resilient outside of Absolutely. That. And
0: this was my first insight. So after that, it was maybe a week or so later, something happened to me that I would have normally found stressful. And it was just like water off a duck's back. Mm. And then another thing happened and I thought, whoa, this is interesting. And I started asking other people who I knew were on the course and they said the same thing. And that's when I, because I'd done a master's in exercise science, I knew that exercise is fundamentally good for us because it's a stressor, right? You put your, your body under stress, whether it's a cardiovascular stress of out running or biking or rowing, or it's a mechanical stress of lifting weights, mm-hmm. which you clearly do a bit of, right? And it's the stress of exercise that initiates that tissue remodeling, mm-hmm. right? So there are, it's upregulation of stress response proteins that drive these changes at a biochemical level that make us ultimately bigger, faster, stronger,
1: better. So, for the same level of stress, you're better able to to tolerate that?
0: Absolutely. So, and, and, and you know, people get it. You know, you, 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 if you've been unfit, you go out for a run and you're just blowing out your ass, right? And you're, you're really struggling. And then you do that run again and, maybe a little easier but you do it 5-10 times all of a sudden it's getting easier same with, with weights resistance training right and, and this is one of the biggest problems that people have when they're designing their own exercise programs is that they find something that they like and they do the same thing over and over again right mm. one of the fundamental principles of exercise physiology is that of progressive overload you need to progressively overload the system in order to stimulate adaptation mm-hmm. right so it's the it's the extra level of stress that drives adaptations Mm -hmm. and and for me we became the dominant species on earth largely not exclusively but largely because we adapted better to stressors in our Mm -hmm. environment right and one of one of the the best things that we did is that we traded off strength and power for dexterity right so a gorilla if a gorilla was to hit me or you, mm. they would hit us with 16 times the force right. that we could hit them.
1: Wouldn't take them on a, in an armorous
0: No, absolutely not. However, the next time you're at the zoo, uh, and this is lost a little bit in the podcast, but you just go up to, and you do that, right? Where you are touching your fingers to, to your thumb and you will mess with the gorilla's head because they don't have opposable thumbs, mm. right? So we trade it off, all of that strength for dexterity in our in our fingers, which meant that we could manipulate things, right? With fine motor control in our fingers and the amount of nerve endings that we have there, and that made us able to make tools. So our ancestor, two point four million years ago, Homo habilis, and um, the toolmaker, right? Mm-hmm. And that then enabled us to create weapons and to tools mm-hmm. and to improve our environment or how we functioned in our environment. And then um, 1.8 million years ago, we stood up Homo erectus. And that was actually fundamental um, to our development as a species. Because when you're in savanna grasslands, um, when you stand up, mm. you can actually see over the grass. You can see predators, you can see prey. And the other thing that it does is that if you've ever done burk you know burk crawls as an exercise yeah they're tough they're really really tough right um going around on four limbs is a lot more energy Mm. hungry than bipedalism so walking on two legs actually uses a lot less energy and it frees up energy to create a bigger brain Mm. what anthropologists think is sometime around then we created fire and that helped us to unlock nutrients Mm. Cooking meat, cooking vegetables, plants unlocks a lot of their nutrients, mm. enables us to have more energy to develop to a brain. So there's this thing called the expensive tissue hypothesis. You look at, at every species and the size of their brain is limited by the amount of calories that they can mm. actually spur for the brain
1: because it's the mm. most hungry we have a lot of calories available today. We Does do. Does that mean our brains are going <laughs>
0: Unfortunately <get bigger>? not. <laughs> I like your thinking, and if only that was the case. We are now overfed and undernourished, mm. as you well know, right? But, but this whole thing about, and so, so we adapted better than mm. any other species, but actually um, being able to move for long periods of time actually was a, a real benefit to our species because we could hunt and gather and we could, um, and particularly if you're hunting prey, like if, if you're on in the African savanna, if you look at the way that the Maasai or any of those tribes, they, they kill their food, the, an antelope, they'll just, they'll just run it down. Mm-hmm. So the antelope can run much faster, but if you run at a steady pace, it's got to look around, oh, they're still going and they've got to keep running, they keep running. Animals, the only way that they can cool down is by panting, mm. right? And if you, have, you make them trot, they can't pant, they overheat, they fall over and they walk up and they stick a spear in it, right? Mm. But it also gives us the ability to um, hunt or gather far and wide, lots of plants and stuff like that. So so in, anyway, and that and the fire unlocked those nutrients, helped us to have the bigger brain, made us smarter and, and research that just came out the other day showed that, and it was a very clever study, that Neanderthal, um, where they actually incubated those in uh, the the brain uh, um, cells in a test tube dish, and, and it was pretty magic science by how they did it, but anyway, they showed that Neanderthal brains don't make as many, many neurons. So that's how we out-competed Neanderthals was our smarts, right? That ability for us to develop this big brain mm-hmm was hugely important for our species, but we adapted to stress. And that is really, really key, is that there are a number of things. We're going to focus on exercise, but there's also things such as heat and cold stress, Mm. that, that um, uh, that there are mechanisms, biological mechanisms, that are conserved across species and across evolution that we benefit mm-hmm. from exposure to heat and cold. And there's amazing stuff, I'm sure you've covered mm-hmm. this on your podcast, that that there are changes in gene expression mm-hmm. whenever you become overly hot like in a sauna or you go into a cold, cold water mm-hmm. or an ice bath or even a cold shower that upregulate protective genes. And it comes from these stress response proteins. They're the things that are the common link between exercise, heat exposure, cold exposure, and intermittent fasting mm-hmm. that actually upregulate protective genes sure. that improve your health, physical and mental.
1: Is another one of those kind of uh, sort of micro stressors some of the, the sort of plant defense compounds Absolutely. that like certain polyphenols yes.
0: yes 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 and and here's the thing that, that a lot of people talk and it does my head in when people talk about <laughs> antioxidants right there are things such as sulforaphane mm-hmm. i'm sure you're aware of that's in broccoli and um, kale and uh, brussels sprouts that whole family cruciferous of cruciferous thing. vegetables right um allicin in garlic, onions, leeks, chives, right? EGC and EGGC and, and other things that are in teas. Uh, and there are a, a whole list of what we call hermetic polyphenols or hermetic phytochemicals, right? So these are, um, a lot of people talk on resveratrol that mm-hmm. you get in grapes and red wine. And, and, and I've heard people talk about their antioxidants. They're not antioxidants, right. they're poison. Mm. They are small doses of poison. And as you're aware, they are very prominent in the, in the leaves of the plant and they are defense mechanisms against insects. Mm-hmm. So when an insect eats it, it actually triggers, and Mark Matson showed this 10, 15 years ago, it actually triggers uh, in the mouth, it realizes it's a toxin, signal to the brain, and there's an aversion response that says, don't eat it. But because we are much bigger when we eat these, these plants, um, we actually just create a mild metabolic stress at a cellular level. That upregulates right. your, and um, I like to simplify things, right? Um, when people take antioxidant supplements, it's like your cells are being guarded by dad's army.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When you eat those hormetic polyphenols or phytochemicals, you upregulate your own special forces right. soldiers, right? Superoxide dismutase, catalase, glutathione, peroxidase mm-hmm. These are the the special forces for your antioxidant defense system, right? And this is hormesis in action. Mm-hmm. Hormesis is, is described as sublethal exposure to stressors or toxins, which at high levels can kill us at low
1: to moderate levels induce stress resistance. That's a really important point, right? Because, so for example, sulferophane, I think it yeah. activates NRF2 pathway. Yes, correct. So then you get the production of glutathione yep. which is an antioxidant yep. um so these these compounds have the capacity to get your body to produce its own antioxidants yes but there there is some rhetoric out there that simply because these plants contain what we'd call defense compounds yes that they shouldn't or, or they can't be part of an optimal diet at all it's complete another nonsense and uh, so a lot a
0: lot of the paleo the carnivore mm. guys you know you know they talk about this this is this is about the dose making a poison right so if you were to eat a ludicrous amount of this stuff in a concentrated form then it could have a negative effect but the amount of plants that we consume They have hormetic Mm. effects right Right. and so we know but this is the danger when you take a compound and you isolate it and you take it as a supplement right and you take high doses of it like we're seeing now that that for a number of things a number of drugs like rapamycin which would appear to be pretty good in anti-aging but too much actually Mm. accelerates aging right so there, there's a lot, of, and, and it's, it's all explained by hormesis. Mm. Right? It's an
1: important point, thresholds matter. Absolutely,
0: thresholds for sure matter, right? Mm. You get too little sunlight, you will get vitamin D deficiency and it increases your risk of huge amounts of chronic disease and destroys your brain. You get too much sunlight, um, you, you can get cancer, right? Um, it is about the dose, right? You do too little exercise, shit house for you. You do too much and we're talking ridiculous amounts that, that you can actually kill yourself. Mm. Right? So, it's sublethal exposure
1: to intermittent stressors. That is the key. Mm. So, you're in the Navy. Yes. You finish up in the Navy, and then you go and, and do your studies and, and become a professional boxer. So, like, <laughs> how, how does this all happen?
0: So I did, I, I, I did the Navy. I tried to box in the Navy, and I wasn't allowed to because it was our crew, right? And, and in my last couple of years, I was doing helicopter search and rescue. We sit around for a while, long time waiting for the buzzer, you know, 24-hour duties. And, and, you know, you've got work to do, and then there's a lot of free time. I went and did a master's in nutrition, um, because that's what I wanted my next career to be. So I, I moved over to Australia. I set up as a nutritionist and an exercise physiologist and started working one-on-one with high end clients and then realized actually it's behavior change. That's the key thing. Right? So I went and did another postgrad in neuroscience, um, and, and then I'm like, oh, the mind is missing. I'm now doing my PhD in psychology, right? Just to round it all out. But, I'd started initially doing a bit of white-collar boxing and got bitten by the bug of of Mm. white-collar boxing, which is basically likes of me and you going and doing a charity do and and that sort of stuff. But I got bitten by the bug. My wife was like, this stuff is really bad for your brain. And I said, yeah, no, I know. But so I negotiated with her and um, I proposed that if she let me have one professional fight, Mm. that I would hang up my gloves forever right okay. so so we did I did that, and and I trained, but I trained for five months rather than eight mm-hmm. weeks, and um, because I knew as a physiologist, you can't just jump in as normal person out there and train like a professional boxer. you've got to progressively mm-hmm. overload the system, which we will dig into in terms of boxing, so
1: it's I, a different kind of fitness too, so I've got quite a few friends, actually, one of my good friends he won the bronze um, uh, medal in the Olympics wow. recently. Fantastic. Um, Harry Garsight. Harry Garsight. yeah, yeah. Oh, awesome. Fella. So um, one to watch, he's a young fella doing great awesome. things and an amazing speaker and just person, but I'd love to have him on the show at some time, I probably will. Um, but watching him and, and also just doing some boxing myself through um, when I was playing football and then just recreationally, um, it's a different type of fitness i'm not sure if you haven't done it it's hard to appreciate just how fit these guys are Ah, ridiculously fit right and
0: little anecdote story richmond tigers some of them used to Mm. come and i did some work with their leadership team and then some of them when i lived in melbourne in 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 Peran i had a gym and some of them used to come in and we had a boxing ring downstairs and and we got we would get in and and do a bit of sparring and i remember they would just done pre-season and I was sparring Dan Jackson, who's a midfielder, super fit, great
1: guy. I think he used to be I think he was like the the fittest in the league or was right. running the most kilometers per game at right. one stage.
0: Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean he was fit as a butcher's dog, mm. but after a minute of sparring, he was spent. And he mm. said he said, I can't believe this. And and it's just it's a different level of fitness. And then when you throw in other people punching you in the face, mm. the adrenaline goes through the roof, right? And you you're just so aroused, like. And you'll talk to people. People say, "Why the hell would you want to box?" Right? I, particularly as a neuroscientist, and I know it's crazy, but you never feel as alive as you do when you get in that ring. And when I when the bell went for my professional fight, it is the one and only time. Mm. I went into extreme fight or flight where I couldn't hear anything outside the ring. My focus went laser focus on this guy. It was like I was transported into a different Mm -hmm. world. Right. And it's that extreme fight or flight. Like you do not feel that alive Mm -hmm. normally and that stuff can become addictive. Mm
1: -hmm. I want to circle back to kind of some of the training that maybe you did Mm -hmm. through that prep. Yeah. Um, but so it was. It was the wife that that made you hang up, hang up the boots there.
0: Well, look, look. look it, it, it was a bit of both. I mean, she she said, and 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 it's you know when somebody tells you something that you know in mm. your in your heart that is right, and you go, oh, God, yeah, you're mm. right. And so it's just not good getting punched mm. in the head. Yeah. So I I still do a, a bit of boxing training, but I don't spar. Um,
1: After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash livingproof to download your zero-cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash livingproof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. So when you look at the, the kind of public health today yes. as it stands... Um, there's a lot of, I guess, attention on diet. Yep, we're not going so well there. Um, there's a there's a room for improvement. Yep. Um, particularly in in, I mean, across the entire world, there's issues, but within Western countries, there's a certain set of issues. And yep. um, there's people talking about it. I'm not particularly sure at a population level how much progress is actually happening just yet. But we're go- we're going backwards, right? Um, when you look at sort of our overall set of behaviors, yes. lifestyle in general, nutrition gets a lot of focus. Um, how, do you, how do you sort of put in context exercise and if you were to compare it to say nutrition in terms of its importance yes. for the average person that, that does want to improve the health span, would like to maybe add extra years onto their life. Are these two things, are you able to sort of quantify or, or compare the relative... Um, impact of of each of these on our health.
0: Yeah, look, it, it's it's a great question, and it's a very difficult question to quantify. But we have we have some data around it, right? Um, so eating a reasonable diet um will, will keep you in reasonably good health, right? And if you eat a very good diet, right, and and whether that is vegetarian, vegan. Or one that's meat with lots of plants in it, you, you, you know, the, the the longevity benefits across those are relatively similar. We know that in this country, more than 50% of all foods eaten are ultra-processed foods, right? And 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 it's the ultra-processed foods that's really doing the damage, right? Forget about fat, carbohydrate, and protein. Stop eating shit that has not been alive, right? And so my thing on, on on nutrition, we'll just touch on it is eat a low-H.I. diet, where H.I. stands for human interference, right? Mm. So, um, if you're a meat-eater, the last time I looked, chicken don't give birth to nuggets, and fish don't have fingers, right? Mm. Um, If you're a vegan, um, soy burgers, you know, that's not good nutrition. Eating plants is good nutrition, right? Eating stuff that has recently been alive is the way that, and minimally interfered with by humans, is what you really want to do, because... The research um, shows that um, there's a big study come out, come out of France that people who have four serves or more of ultra-processed foods, which is really easy to do, mm. have breakfast cereal and orange juice for, for breakfast, have a sandwich with bread um, for, for, for lunch and then have a snack, a, a, a treat. They're you're over four. Mm. 62% increased risk of all-cause mortality mm. versus people who don't eat any. Right, That's crazy. If like you smoke 40 cigarettes a day, that does not increase your risk of all-cause mortality by 62%, right? So with, to, to go back to answer your question and the relevance importance of, of, of nutrition and, and exercise, if you're really bad at both, it will probably um, decrease your lifespan in equal amounts, right? But if you're good at both, you get more bang for your buck from exercise, right? right. Uh, as above to to, to mm-hmm. eating a reasonable diet and being reasonably um, healthy or are, are reasonable exercise, right? And and this came, there's a big study came out, um, published in, in JAMA in 2018, where they had over 200, 220,000 people who had all done treadmill testing. And then they followed these guys up um, for more than a decade. And they looked at who died and, and when they died. And, and they also looked at the risk uh, or whether they had some comorbid diseases mm-hmm. as well. Right. So here's how it went. And um, so the hazard ratio for death, right. And um, based on a, a, everything's compared to a one. Mm-hmm. So I think if you had heart disease, current heart disease, you had a 1.41 or 1.42 hazard ratio of dying early versus somebody who didn't have heart disease. So a 40% increase. Mm-hmm. If you have diabetes, it's like a 40% increase, right? And and some other diseases were a little bit less. If you were low fitness, low cardiovascular fitness, you had a 500% increased death rate versus those who were elite levels of fitness. And in every increased level of fitness, there was a step change in um, improved lifespan, right. right? And and what the single biggest impact on your lifespan is having high cardiovascular fitness, mm. respiratory fitness. Which right? is measured by VO2? By, by
1: VO2 max, yeah. Right. If someone yeah. hasn't heard of that before, yes, but, or maybe they have heard of it, but they've never had someone just simply define what does that mean?
0: Yeah. It is your maximal oxygen uptake, right? So it's the um, maximum amount of oxygen that you can take into your system and use and utilize, right? And, and another way of looking at it is METs, metabolic equivalent. So if we're just sitting around, it's one MET. We'll burn um, one calorie per kilogram, right, per minute. And then as you do more and more intense exercise or, or, you, or you get fitter, you have higher levels of METs. Right. So METs and, and, and VO2 are used interchangeably. But if people have a, a tracker like my, my Apple Watch, uh, if you've got a whoop band, i got a whip yeah you got a whip that probably will tell you your your cardiovascular it'll approximate your Mm -hmm. vo2 a fitbit does it as well see we both have aura rings on they don't do it right
1: what do you think is better for for measuring heart rate
0: oh no that's a really interesting you need to wear a chest strap uh you need to wear a chest strap right well i'm a hurry okay right so so this apple watch shit ice when it comes to exercising heart rate Mm. is it overestimating or under underestimating Underestimating. massively underestimating my stuff i i think to to get really good heart rate data you need to have a heart rate monitor on now that's just me and it may be because my Mm. i've got a hurry wrist
1: that's interesting though so so when you're um and we'll probably circle back to the relevance of this but if you're trying to work out what zone you're in or whatever so if you're looking at your um apple watch yes. it's underestimating it's, compared to a chest strap it's underestimated by how much like 10 15 percent
0: at least 10
1: percent yeah yeah and and
0: uh i've kind of looked when, when i'm sitting in the sauna comparing the apple watch and the aura ring as well and yeah. uh, what i need to do is get my chest strap on right yeah. and and do it because the chest strap
1: gives you the true same thing happened to me so i was doing um calculating my sort of zone two off of the whoop yes and i did i just felt like when i was in zone two i felt like i'm actually i think i think my heart rate's higher here i think i'm, mm. I'm actually might be pushing out of zone two here yeah and then i put the chest strap on and it definitely was it was yes. about 15 beats per minute higher on the chest strap
0: yeah i think they're pretty good at resting heart rate but when you get exercising heart rate i i, I wouldn't trust them i don't trust it personally
1: so that study there essentially what it showed was that moving from lower um, fitness yeah. to higher fitness yes. had a greater effect on mortality or premature death than did these comorbidities. Th- than not
0: having diabetes right. or not having heart disease, mm. right? And, 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 it, and it was amazing in that for every level of fitness that you go up, mm. there was a very clear longevity benefit. And, and the beauty here, right, if, we're, if there are people who are listening who... Are not currently exercising and know that their fitness is shithouse. So they're in the low group. They're in the low group, right? The biggest boon from your longevity goes from low to low average. That's amazing. That, and, and that's awesome. And then if you go from low average to above average, like that's massive. Mm. And going from low average, to, sorry, low to above average, which is. Absolutely attainable for everybody who's listening, right? That has a dramatic impact on your longevity. And this, for me, is the beautiful message that right. we should be going. But it is, it it's a dose response. Right. So as you get, there was, there was no upper limit to this, basically. The people who were elite, and that is in the top 2.5% mm. of VO2, they actually had significantly lived longer, better lifespan than people who were high, uh, above average,
1: right? If people don't have a watch or a gadget that's measuring VO2 yes. and, and say they're listening and thinking, well, firstly, I'd, I'd like to know kind of where do I current, what's my baseline? Where yes. am I at? So I yeah. guess- Is there a a sort of VO2 range that you would say, well, that's roughly low and that's high, or is that kind of irrelevant to the average person?
0: It it depends on your age as well, Mm -hmm. right? And and look, the best thing I think for people is a beep test. And there are tables, and we can put this all in the show notes for Mm -hmm. people, right? where you can go and do a beep test. All you need is, uh, is 20 meters. They even now have 15 meter mm-hmm. ones, but you've got to measure it out accurately. Running back and
1: forth between Running kinds. back and forth.
0: And everybody, that, I know that there's all the listeners going, oh, I remember that from school. That's horrible.
1: Traumatic experience. Yeah, yeah that's school. right.
0: But it's the, it's the last minute that's horrible, right? Mm. The last couple of minutes. Depends mm. how much you push yourself, uh, and you can push yourself psychologically, right? But that's a really good proxy, for vo2 now my Apple watch will tell me it tells me that now my vo2 max is uh 47 right, right? i know because i got it tested recently that it's about 51 right which is elite for for, for my
1: that's pretty pretty accurate then
0: yeah it's it, it's not bad it's within 10 percent, which is pretty damn good right um and i always had a goal that was when i'm in my 50s
1: i want to have right. a vo2 max in my mm-hmm. 50s and right? do you have is there a chart that we can put in the notes yeah, that shows there's, there's for your chart. age. This yeah, is absolutely. So
0: I, I've actually created for your listeners. Um, I've created a chart of low and um, low average, mm-hmm. uh, all of that, and it, and it came from this journal that that I'm that I'm talking about, and and we'll put in there uh, all of those results. Um, and and the key thing I think is to get yourself cardiovascularly fit. Now. There's another beautiful study that came out quite recently that I read. In fact, I, I talked about it on my podcast last week, where basically they, they had this whole thing, right? So you, you clearly lift a lot of weights and there's that whole thing. Is my cardio going to destroy yeah. my crossover. strength gains, right? This crossover effect,
1: right? Mm. We're all worried about that.
0: We are, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and so they, they did this beautiful study um, where they, they took a bunch of people and they, they trained them initially. They were unfit, really unfit. They trained them for six weeks um, in a progressive cardiovascular training program, right? And, they, and and all the data shows six to eight weeks of a progressive cardiovascular training program will significantly enhance your fitness, right? And what they found was that, that, that but actually they didn't train them completely. They trained one leg. Right. And these are beautiful studies. These single leg studies are so awesome, right? Because if we're to do a study and you're in group A and I'm in group B, and there's a, say, a hundred of you and a hundred of me. Mm -hmm. There's, well, I mean, are the results, the diet that they put us on or the exercise regime, or is it your genetics, right? Mm-hmm. And you never know. So that's why you get one so the control, person, is the control is their other leg. The control is their other leg. Like this is the best type of stuff. And it's so clever. So they get this special bike where they just exercise one leg, right? So one leg gets really fit, the other leg doesn't. Mm. And and they measured the capillary density. What sort of
1: intensity was that? Um,
0: and well, it was progressive. progressive. So they started them off zone two, and then are adding in a little bit of zone four, zone five stuff, right? And and they they measured the the capillarization, so the amount of capillaries that are in there, and they got a big increase in the capillarization. But turns out that what that does is it triggers your satellite cells, your stem cells, to to actually activate. And then, when they went on a resistance training program, the leg that had been previously cardiovascular trained got more strength and more um, uh, cross sectional area as well. So it turns out that the base of cardiovascular training increased the capillarization and actually activated um, Mm. genes that would then improve um, their ability to gain strength.
1: So, was that in that? Study? Were they? Did they do a phase of that uh, cardio, sort of respiratory fitness training, and then strength training in a different block? Or because some of the questions are same day. Like yes, so, some yes. sometimes people wonder: okay, in the same day, if I go and do my resistance training, yes, is it problematic if after that I jump on and do a forty-five minutes of sort of moderate intensity, steady state zone? Yes,
0: two? yes. And and look, the 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 quick answer to that: do your resistance training first. Okay right that that that's the way that i always okay. answer that question and the research shows that
1: okay so i want to make sure we dig into how to improve your vo2 max from a sort of practical point of view but before yep. we get to that so vo2 max is kind of one objective way of looking at our physical fitness yes and you and and you um beautifully explained that study that shows how that the magnitude of effect that it has on longevity and and um, why we want to set up our exercise program in a way that will help improve it. Uh, what are the other things? So we hear people talk about like grip strength. Yes. What are the other kind of measures that are out yeah. there um, that we may want to consider um, that the research shows are associated with longevity or better health yeah. and then um, may influence the type of exercise we're doing?
0: Yeah, so, so, so you rightly said grip strength. And, and look, grip strength is just a proxy Okay. for your strength, right? A lot of people are like, oh, grip strength is really associated with longevity. And it is, right? People who have better grip strength live significantly longer, right? If there's one other thing that comes close to cardiovascular, cardiorespiratory fitness, it's your grip strength, right? And another one is your ability to get off the floor using mm-hmm. as minimal body surfaces as possible. Now, they are proxies. That one about getting off the floor is just about your overall mobility mobility and stability exactly and, and we'll talk about mobility and stability particularly as you get older but the grip strength is basically a proxy
1: for your overall strength and overall So muscle when we mass. meet someone and we shake their hand yes we can get a good idea of their longevity that's right exactly
0: <laughs> <laughs> and and so what what we know uh, about the, the importance of muscle overall right the, the, and this is really really key as you get older, you, we lose muscle mass at a rate of between 3 to 8% per decade, right? Mm. which is quite a big swing, but, it, but it, it's huge. It is quite common that somebody who is the age of 75 will have lost half of all of their muscle mass. Like That's, wow. that's crazy. Now, I think we need to wind back a couple of layers here and look at this from a, a big picture and go back to our genome right? Mm-hmm. And, and Professor Frank Booth said in 2012, the sh- sh- current human gene, he said, the human genome has not changed in over 45,000 years. The current human genome requires and expects us to be highly physically active for normal functioning. Note the way he didn't say optimal. Now, leveraging off that, Frank Booth's lab showed that every time you exercise, there are activation of stress response genes, a subclass of which are called heat shock proteins, which Mm -hmm. we can get into. That often comes up in the sauna conversation. Yeah, absolutely. So so the thing that connects the sauna um, and exercise and cold exposure are heat shock proteins, right? And people go, heat shock proteins in the cold? Uh, They were just called heat shock proteins because they were first noticed in Mm -hmm. heat, right? So they're stress response proteins. They then trigger the activation of a whole host of other metabolic priority genes. These are genes that just get upregulated and improve your metabolism in your body and your brain. Now now what we have discovered in the last twenty to thirty years, progressively more and more, are the role of myokines. All right. So myokines are messenger molecule so a cytokine some people have heard of Mm -hmm. cytokines now because of covid Mm -hmm. and the cytokine storm right so they are they're basically messenger molecules so you have inflammatory and anti-inflammatory cytokines myokines are a subclass of of these messenger molecules that are released in exercising muscle we know that inside the muscle they have autocrine and paracrine which, which means that they act on the cell itself and they act on neighboring cells but then they have endocrine effects, right? Um, like hormonal effects. They spill out of your muscle. Inside the muscle, they make your muscle bigger, faster, stronger. Outside of the muscle, they get into your bloodstream and they impact on your target organs. right? So what we now know about myokines is that they improve how your pancreas functions and, and produces insulin. They improve how your liver um, processes glucose, reducing your risk of diabetes. They improve your entire immune system and how that functions. They, there are certain myokines that kill tumors as well that are protective against cancer. There are myokines that, that impact upon your gut microbiome, um, which then impacts upon all of your physical and mental health. Um, there's myokines that actually increase your bone density, your capillary networks. And then in the brain, you have um, uh, myokines aricin, um that gets released in the brain, um, lactate, that, that you get from mm. lact, people think about lactic acid. Yeah, that actually crosses the blood-brain barrier. This lactate and triggers it, and and a in through two independent pathways trigger the release of BDNF in the brain. Mm. BDNF. I don't, I'm not sure if your listeners have ever heard of. Yeah, it. Yeah, it's come
1: up on the, yeah. on the on the on the sh- uh, episodes where we've spoken about uh, brain health.
0: So BDNF is called brain-derived neurotropic factor. What does neurotropic mean? Nerve growth. We know that if you put BDNF on uh, brain cells in a test tube, they grow like crazy, right. right? It's been called miracle growth of the brain. Like fertilizer. It's fertilizer. There are, there, there are drug companies all around the world right now trying to synthesize BDNF and get it into a pill form where it can be taken and cross the blood-brain barrier. The first drug company to take a patent out of that, I will sell my businesses, I'll sell my house, and I will pawn my children, and I will buy shares in that company. Until that point, the best source of BDNF is exercise. Mm. And it's related to exercise intensity. It's around lactate threshold that BDNAF spikes, right? And it's a really, really interesting study that um, with you put rats or mice in a water maze uh, and, and they hate water, right? So they really try very, very hard to get back. If you do prior running wheel, on, on, get them on a running wheel, um, and, and then you can take little parts of the brain and look at it and you get higher BDNF, they do better on, on memory, right? Mm. And, and actually, I thought about this one day. This is, a, this is one of my hypotheses, right? Why would BDNF be, a, be spiked so much around lactate threshold? And then I thought, well, when would you pr- produce lactate back in evolutionary times? Hunting, th- awesome. hunting or running away. Right. So your brain makes real sense that your brain would actually release this stuff that goes, remember where this shit is. Mm, Even foraging. Foraging, absolutely. Hunting, gathering, right? Mm -hmm. When you find food, boom. Mm -hmm. Remember where this is. Mm -hmm. So, um, or when prey, a lion jumps out to eat, remember where this is, right? So that for me makes sense and, and it was it, it was corroborated by that rat study that showed that their spatial memory actually improved right mm-hmm. so anyway I, I, I digress so, so the, these myokines are hugely important mm-hmm. and when we lose muscle mass right and as I said 3 to 8 percent per year and mm-hmm. you know, by the age of 75 most people have lost half of it you've just mm-hmm. lost a whole heap of medicine
1: and so, the myokines just to rewind one one bit um, they're actually being produced within the skeletal muscle? Within the skeletal
0: muscle. Right. And they escape mm-hmm. outside of the muscle, right? So, autocrine and paracrine is mm-hmm. um, impact within the cell and within the next door neighbor and cell. And are they
1: being produced mostly from resistance training or just any Both. type of exercise? any type. It's just
0: contracting muscle. Now, I haven't seen studies yet that are like, what's the optimal? Gotcha. For the release because there's a whole heap we, we now you know there's over 600 myokines that have now mm. been discovered we only know what about 60 of them do like t- two of the most important are um interleukin 6 which is an anti-inflammatory myokine and bdnf um, um which some people say isn't a true myokine but it, it, it is ultimately mm. downstream of myokines and um, but there are a huge amount of kinds of that do all sorts of different things. Now, Benta Peterson is a legendary exercise physiologist and she released a study a few years ago that showed that exercise should be prescribed as therapy for 26 different chronic diseases. So the, her lab showed that exercise can either prevent and or treat 26 of the most common chronic diseases. Can you imagine if there was a pill mm. that we could take that would simul- simultaneously reduce our risk of cr- 26 chronic diseases. Mm. It would be the best-selling product that human beings have ever produced. But it's free and it's exercise, right? And so... But it requires behavior change. It requires behavior and it's difficult, right? Mm. And, and that's the thing. So this brings to the, the question, how much should we do? Right. How much exercise should we be doing? Right? How many steps should we take? Right. Mm. And you know, we, we talk about steps and the ten thousand steps a day. And you know, I had a Fitbit for years and then I've got an Apple Watch now. And and was always measuring my steps. And one day I thought, where does this come from? There's ten thousand steps. So I dug in to the literature around it. You know where it comes from? Japan or something? Japanese. Uh, marketing campaign for a pedometer company when the I've Japanese Olympics were on, right? <laughs> Bugger yeah. all science behind mm. it whatsoever. Mm. Uh, it just looked at 10,000, looked like the symbol for the Olympics and it's like, a, oh yeah, that's a number. Now, so, so people have got, and, and actually, there was a big study, the biggest global study of physical activity used smartphone data and they tracked the people in 111 countries. And what they found it was a wide range of steps. But on average, um, the lowest was Indonesia, three and a half thousand steps a day. And if you've ever been in Indonesia, you talked about, about Bali and the traffic. You ever been mm. to Indonesia?
1: It's crazy I the traffic. I think that might have been in our take one. Oh, yeah.
0: I'm not sure we made
1: it clear. We, we started recording and um, we had a little hiccup. We did. But yeah, when I, when I go to Bali, long, long story short, you know, anyone who's been there knows the roads are chaotic. Yes. They're not exactly the roads that you're going for a, a nice leisurely stroll on um so my walk my steps in bondi is usually about fifteen thousand. walk from home to studio to the gym but in bali you you tend not to walk that much unless you're on the beach absolutely probably average about three (laughs) thousand because
0: you take your life in your hands right right. and so three and a half thousand and the highest was hong kong and china seven thousand australia about five thousand steps a day right mm. so and that's on average in a population right? really illustrates how important your
1: environment is though oh
0: you, you, mate, we could talk for hours about the built environment mm. and 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 actually you know me and my wife had that this discussion and particularly when we get to retirement we are going to make sure that we are in somewhere where the built environment is is around for physical activity and so at government level they do lots of stuff around planning for the built environment and having walkable cities and stuff like that mm-hmm. because it shows that just you know if you move your your step count from five thousand to eight thousand you get huge benefits. Mm. But it's not a be all and end all of everything, and this is why the recommendations for physical activity don't include step counts, right? Mm. Um, because it's about you could walk fifteen thousand steps, but walk really slowly. And that's nowhere near
1: as good for you as if you're running or doing higher intensity or lifting weights or those sorts of things, right? I think this is a really important point because I often have this conversation with, you know, folks I know who are maybe aged in their fifties or sixties and yeah. they say exactly that, that. They say, Well, I do my ten thousand steps a day yeah. and I'm not sure they fully understand the the benefit of having some very specific types of training over and above Sort of leisurely walking.
0: Yeah, look, look, leisurely walking, and 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 w- walking in general will, will get you quite far, right? But if you want to enhance your longevity, and and especially if you want to enhance your health span, so I'm more interested in health span than lifespan.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: What's the point of living to a hundred if the last twenty five years are in mm-hmm. wheelchair and on multiple medications and stuff like and demented, mm-hmm. right? I'm about increasing the amount of healthy years, disease-free years. I'm sure you've you've talked mm. about this on the podcast, right? So um walking will get you a reasonable amount, but in order to really improve your health span, um, you need moderate to vigorous physical activity, MVPA, right? Mm. And and that's what the recommendations are. So in this country, in the United States and the UK, they're all pretty much identical, right? It's 150 to 300 minutes of moderate physical activity a day, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous a week. A week, sorry, did I say day? A week a day, yeah. Thank just you. To, just to not scare. <laughs> you. <Yeah, them off. laughs> exactly. Um, a, a week, right? And uh, uh, and making sure that there's at least two strength training sessions, right? And uh, uh, and we can tweak those things, right? So most Australians don't hit the bottom limit. And, and, mm-hmm. and most people in most advanced economies don't hit the mm-hmm. bottom limit. For me, this, uh, this question was answered beautifully um, by a study um, by Harvard researchers where they studied the Hadza. These are one mm-hmm. of the last true hunter-gatherer tribes on earth. There, there, are, there are others that live in the Amazon, mm-hmm. but, the, but these, are, these guys are more accessible. So 90% of their food intake is still from hunting and gathering, right? So they live a life that is as close to mm-hmm. the one that is gene- optimized for us from a genome perspective, right? And so what these guys did, it was a beautiful study. They, for two weeks, they put heart rate monitors on them and physical activity trackers because they wanted to know not just how much they move, but what was the intensity, right? And and they did it for four two-week periods in the year, spread out the year because they wanted to catch the dry season and the wet season as well. So get a real good snapshot all year round. And they did... Half females, or roughly half males, half females from the age of, I think it was 15 to 60 or 65. So they got a really big spread. Turns out that Hadza women do almost 14,000 steps a day. Hadza men, 18,500 steps mm-hmm. a day, right? But that wasn't the whole bit of the story because they measured moderate to vigorous physical activity. And it turns out that they, the Hadza, Do 135 minutes of moderate to vigorous physical activity a day, 945 a week. Yet we can't do 150 of moderate. So this was moderate to vigorous. This was a mix Mm. of them. And so that, and if we go back to Professor Frank Booth's talk, the current human genome requires and expects
1: us to be highly physically active for normal functioning Mm. can i ask you a question something i always think about um with regards to kind of our genome and evolution Mm. right so um clearly humans have a a set of behaviors and if you look uh, back ancestrally there's a set of behaviors um how much of the the sort of behaviors that we um come to learn about our ancestors um are relevant, I guess, when we're thinking about health span versus um, the, when I think about evolution, I think mostly about um, sort of um, getting to an age to procreate. Yes. You know, being the major point, goal of of evolution as opposed to the conversation you and I are having is about improving health span. Yes. Which seemed to be, it could be that, you know, certain behaviors that get you to an age to procreate could be disadvantageous for long-term health. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And I think there's a thing called antagonistic pleiotropy that sort of describes that phenomenon. But, um, so I'm wondering sort of how much can we take away by just looking at our ancestors and what they did, yeah. given our goals are slightly different.
0: Yes. Uh, and look, it is a very good point, but I think when, when we're talking about exercise and diet. We, we can see and, and for me it's about how we've co-evolved with our environment, right so we co-evolved with plants uh, and we, we co-evolved eating these plants and, and in and eating some animal food but the, the the polyphenols, the phytochemicals that we talked about um that we get mostly from plants we, we also get some stuff um, from from animal foods these things are cofactors and enzymes for lots of our chemical reactions, right, that happens. So I like to take stuff down into the the, the, the biology, mm-hmm. right, and, and particularly around that biochemistry that's happening, the the epigenetics, the switching on and off of genes, and how lots of those phytochemicals are really important in that in those biological reactions, right? So they actually help our ecosystem of cells to actually run mm-hmm. effectively. They are the things that I think that we can actually take and go okay so that's important fundamentally for our biology and and we can see that, that a lot of those things are activating longevity pathways. Mm-hmm. We can see that the exercise is activating longevity pathways, right? Um, and so those sorts of behaviors, I think we can draw inferences from those behaviors around our health span and our mm-hmm. lifespan. Right. That that would be my way mm-hmm. of, of answering that question. And, and and the genome's really interesting. Um I, I used to work with a, a molecular genetic, geneticist called Margie. And she said something brilliant to me one day. She said, Paul, what most people don't realize is that you sign a pact with your genes, right? And basically your genes say, Okay, I'll keep you alive and healthy, but we forget to read the small print. And the small print says, until you've passed optimal childbearing age Mm. and then all bets are off, right? Mm. And if you're sitting listening to this and you're in your 40s or your 50s or your 60s, you know what I'm talking about because it just becomes harder. Um, Because your genes don't give a stuff about you. Your genes actually only care about the species Mm -hmm. and about procreation, Right. right? So they'll keep you alive and healthy until you've passed optimal childbearing age and then it goes to ratchet menopause, andropause, and it all goes mm-hmm. downhill. And that's when we have to work harder, right? Mm-hmm. This whole thing, you know, we don't stop exercising because we grow old. We grow old because we stop exercising. Mm-hmm.
1: So, how do we piece all this together, right? Yeah. So, there's there's evidence that that looks at um, VO2 max. You spoke about grip strength. Yes. Um, sometimes people also in the, within this conversation talk about um and this might come into sort of how you apply this but people talk about um sort of metabolic flexibility and being a good fat burner and and i think a lot of that talk sort of um certainly i think has been brought to light through the endurance community who um, have sort of been championing this idea of zone two or sort of moderate intensity steady state um exercise and you hear people talking about lactate thresholds and 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 all that sort of stuff is. Is your ability to kind of sit in that steady state in your aerobic base, yes. is that another thing that's as important as, say, VO2 max and strength to look at?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's a it's a fundamental building block um, for, for this stuff. I think it is Im- important. I mean, a lot of my training, and, and it's interesting, right? Because when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail, Right. And because I'm ex-military and did some boxing, you know, I'm just—I was all into the high-intensity stuff, high, hit training and stuff like that. And and as I've started looking more into the literature, I, I, I've actually realized, you know what? I need to get to also do a base of that zone mm. two, as you refer to that—that that baseline cardiovascular training because it does different things in the muscle, right? It helps with that muscle capillarization and it gives you. A really good base for your muscles to function well off right and and then we need to add in that the higher stuff as well so my recommendations are always for people if you've got limited time to exercise in in a week right make sure you do at least one of those steady state right um 30 minutes plus, right? And and the, the, if you don't have heart rate monitor, the big thing is, can you carry on a conversation, right? Let's just make it really practical for people. You, you need to know that, yes, you're moving, but you should be able to carry on a conversation, mm-hmm. right? And so how long is that session? And, and that session is depending on your fitness and depending on your goals and depending on how much time you have, at least 20 minutes, right? At least 20 minutes of just getting out and doing steady state stuff ideally it's 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 30 plus right and and if you're now he, here are where some of these recommendations are, are about health span they're not about performance right mm-hmm. if you're about performance
1: different podcast sure. you're going to sit in zone two a lot more if you're an endurance absolutely. cyclist or something uh,
0: absolutely right okay. and and actually um Math math training, you from was with Phil Maffetone and, mm-hmm. and, and math training and, and actually nudging it down to that lower end of zone two. And, and I read it and I'm like, oh, really? And then a good mate of mine who is a ninja professor, Grant mm-hmm. Schofield, who's a, a triathlete and, and who trains triathletes and works with special forces, he goes, mate, this shit's real. So what's the
1: what's the kind of rationale for that?
0: The, the, the rationale for that is just about your aerobic base. And it's very similar to zone two, but for some people, um, the upper end of zone two is getting out of that zone. It's pushing right? lactate it's up pu- a bit Pushing, too high. yeah. You don't you don't want lactate. You you want to be really in that sort of
1: lower end of zone two. It's interesting though. So cause that's where lactate gets or lactic acid gets a bad rap, right? Yeah. Because it'll push you out of zone two. But yes. to your point earlier, um, lactate, which has often been sort of considered as a toxic byproduct, um, from what I'm hearing from you, yeah. and and I've seen elsewhere, it actually can have important um, effects on it's, our immune it's function.
0: Wonderful and- stuff, right? It right. is wonderful stuff. And and this is this whole thing about confirmation bias, right? It is very very strong, and when you're a hammer, it looks like a nail. Right. And and so it, when you take a step back and and you look at different bits of research, you see. It's really complicated. I mean, exercise is complicated. Nutrition is ridiculously mm. complicated. But at least in exercise, we can do those single leg studies. Imagine that we could do um, where you could split your body in half, and one half gets one diet, and the mm. other half gets it like that. That's where you get some true evidence, I
1: mean, incredible, right? half vegan, half carnivore. Yeah, that's, that's right.
0: Good. That's right. And let's <laughs> let's roll it out and see what half of the body dies first. Right. But until we get to that point, um, we 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 have to make do now. So so exercise you can do. Better studies, mm-hmm. and and we can you know we can take a muscle biopsy, right? Which is, and I've done a muscle biopsy before. It's horrible. You stick this massive needle, and you pull out this piece of like about the size of a rice bubble, and then you can stick it under the microscope. And look at the changes in enzyme activity and, and, and muscle synthesis and all sorts of stuff. So, we do know a lot more about, about exercise. Um, so, anyway, let, let, let's get back to yep. this. So, uh, one steady
1: state, at least 20 minutes,
0: p- potentially 30 minutes. Potentially 30, 30 minutes. And if you've got more time, maybe a little and bit And you're more. puffed, but you can still have a conversation. Correct. Yeah. You know you're working, but you can still have a conversation. And, and then… For me, it's just skip right past zone three, get right up to zone four and five, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're going hard. And, and, and probably the, the two most effective ways of, of increasing your VO2 max quickly are doing intervals, right? Um, and so a four-minute interval where you go as hard as you can for four minutes mm-hmm. and at the end of the four minutes, you should be goosed, right? Mm-hmm. Whether that's a run a bike, a row, it doesn't matter what that your is. your heart rate's kind of and and your heart rate is getting right up to towards its max right mm-hmm. at the end of it. So, and and again, this depends
1: on your level of fitness. Yeah, if, what if someone kind of just struggles to hold that for four minutes?
0: Well, well, well you will get look. So for them, um, the, there's another thing that they can do, which we, we we'll get into in a in a second, but um. To finish this off, you go for four minutes and, and you're going hard, right? And, and, and if you struggle, you know, that last minute is where you push, right? Um, but you, ideally, you're going at a reasonably steady pace, right? But you're going hard. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the four minutes, you're toast. And then you recover for, again, depending on your fitness, one to two minutes only. And you do that four times, mm-hmm. right? So, there's four blocks of four minutes. That's 16 minutes with um, either three or six minutes recovering. It's going to take you about Just half over, an hour yeah, total. Yeah, it's, it's, oh, it's under half an hour, right? Yeah. And, and so I'm all about bang for your buck, right? The, the other way of doing it then is um, high intensity interval training, right? And again, there's a bit of misnomer around this. Like most people who do HIT, you go and you go to do a gym class of HIT, it's not really HIT, it's HISS. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you think about your heart rate profile, if you, and this was my good friend, Michelle Delcour, who is a, a, a brilliant exercise scientist. Um, like if you're going and you're doing a CrossFit class or an F45 or something like that, and you look at your heart rate, it is high throughout the class. Like you get a little dip when you recover in between the sets, but you're high all the way through. It's high intensity, almost steady state. The classic high-intensity interval training stuff, all the stuff that was done early in the labs, where you go all out for between 30 seconds and a
1: minute, and then you recover for four to five minutes. So how important is the, is the up and then the recovery period in terms of getting the adaptations? Yeah,
0: so, so look, the, the, and again, we haven't compared, or I haven't seen data, maybe somebody else has about the classic hit. Right. Go all out for a minute, recover for four, and repeat. Because that takes quite a while if you're doing five sets of that. The way that I prefer to do it, because I'm I'm time poor, is that I will go and I have a versa climber, and it's an evil piece of equipment. Are you familiar with the versa climber? Mm. It's like it's like a star climber but with handles. Mm-hmm. So your um, your arms are above your head, and and it and it's horrible. They used to have them on ships because they're great in, in in they're great on ships because it doesn't matter if you wobble, right? And um, but. The, and the verse climb is an evil piece. So I will go 30 seconds hard um, and then I'll recover for 30 seconds and I'll do 10 of those. So I'm doing 10 30-second intervals. Now, if you're not as fit, you might go hard for 30 seconds and then recover. And, and, and you know, if you're really unfit, let's say th- there's a listener here, um, Mr. and Mrs. Nurkin-Furkin. They're in their 50s. They've done bugger all uh, and, and they're sitting listening to this going, I need to start exercising. Lampos lampposts are your friend. What I want you to do is go out every night after dinner uh, or whenever and between the first two lampposts you're going to walk at a reasonable place. Between the next two lampposts you're going to walk really fast. Then you're going to walk slow. Then you're going to walk fast. Right? And you do that for 10 to 15 minutes. By the end of that they're going to be really blowing. Right? After a week of doing that it's going to start to get reasonably easy after they've done that three or four weeks. They're going to come back to me and go, Paul, that's it. E- that's easy now. I'm like, awesome. And and the beauty of this is, if you're really unfit, your window of adaptation is huge. So going back to what you said earlier, that low, low to, to low average, amazing. Impact the most, on your improvement. Health. most improvement. It's just huge. And, and, and this I think needs to be the message that people need to hear. If you're doing nothing, this is frigging awesome because anything you do is going to have a remarkable impact upon your health, right? And so if you take someone like you who clearly goes to the gym a lot, for you to actually improve your strength, it's going to take a shitload of work versus somebody who comes in and hasn't done anything, they can do almost anything. Like you can give them a shit resistance training program and they will get strong quickly, mm. right? So that window of adaptation is, is really, really important, right? So then as they get fitter, I'm going to go, okay, for the next month, I want you between the first two lampposts, you're going to do the Nurkin-Furkin shuffle, right? So you're going to do a slow shuffle. You're going to try to run and then you walk and then you run and then you walk. And, and the same thing, right? They're going to adapt quickly. Then it's, okay, now I want you to jog, right? And then as they get fitter, okay, you're going to go pretty hard. And as they, as they get really fit, so if I'm training you, I'm like, mate, yeah. lamppost, first two, sprint, then Good walk, thing. then sprint, then walk.
1: That's high-intensity interval training. And if someone has kind of joint or like knee issues, yep. are they are they doing a different type of exercise?
0: You can always do it. go and see an exercise physiologist, mm-hmm. right? So and, and the way I say it, so I used, I used to have a, a registered training organization that trained personal trainers. Uh, and, and you know, I've trained thousands of personal trainers over the years and, and, and done lots of stuff. And there's brilliant personal trainers out there. But it's a, generally a 12-week to six-month mm-hmm. course. An exercise physiologist is doing four years, mm-hmm. right? They are a specialist. It's like nurses versus doctors. And and a lot of those guys will be specialists in certain areas. So if you have an issue, they will design a program for you, right? One of the best things you can do if you've got an injury is swimming, right? Or getting one of those um, water belts that you put on and you, you try to run in a swimming pool. Like, that is hard, yakka. That's really hard. You can cycle. I mean, as you get older, cycling becomes really, really good, right? Mm-hmm. And even those indoor indoor stuff, really good
1: because you don't have to
0: leave the house, right? So there's there's always
1: ways that you can adapt. And but, what's the frequency? So you said with the steady state, it was, per, you know, try and do one a week. Yeah. And and with with this stuff, it, it's at least one a week and
0: I would be leveraging towards two of those a week, mm-hmm. right? And it, again, it all depends how many t- t- have you had. But, If people just had, say, four, they can do four half hours a week, right? Let's just say, which should be your bare minimum, right? So you're doing what 120. You haven't even hit. Actually, let's just let's go for the bottom. Wrong, 150 minutes. So you're doing five 30 minute sessions. Mm -hmm. I actually think you're better doing a 20 minute session every day, but that's another conversation. So let's say we got five. Personally, I would be doing one steady state. Mm -hmm. I would be doing um. One, uh, I'd be probably doing two of the high intensity stuff. Maybe if you're just starting out, you'd do two steady state and one of the high intensity, mm-hmm. and then I'd be doing two strength training sessions. Right. And and probably if you're starting out, um, I'd be doing full body circuit training. Mm-hmm. Right, just do your whole body in a circuit, um, exercising all of your muscles. Um, particularly if you're starting out, you'll get really good gains there, right?
1: Before we move to to strength, yes. Um, and clearly, we're going to have to keep this as an open conversation. We'll yes. Have to get you back on, so we can dive deep. I'm I'm conscious that you have got a flight to to, to get to, but um, on high intensity interval training, a question that I often see that comes up is from women yeah. online who. Um, maybe they've they've had an experience themselves or they've come across information online and they're wondering if high-intensity interval training is, say, safe for women of childbearing age or yeah. transitioning through, through menopause. Do you have any thoughts in terms of differences with programming for men versus women if we're considering sort of high-intensity training?
0: Yeah, look, look,
1: look for, for me, I, I think that's really small nuance, right? I, I think if
0: we're talking general... I I don't see a reason for having significant amounts of of, of difference mm-hmm. for that. Now, having said that, um, particularly when you come around menopause, the, there becomes um certain other influences, the things that you need to think about, right? Mm-hmm. But I think what's even more important for for the message to get to women is they need to do strength training as well, mm. right? And, and this whole, and I've heard many women talk, I'm sure you have, I don't want to lift weights because I don't want to, don't want to get it's big muscles. Fear. Jesus Christ, do you know how hard it is to put on muscle? Yeah. Even even when you have lots of testosterone. I think we have
1: the the bodybuilding industry to thank for that, right? Yeah. There's this yeah, yeah. kind of association if you if you lift weights you're going to look like that.
0: Yeah. And 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 it's not true, mm. right? Uh, I mean to have your level of muscle is a lot of work, mm-hmm. right? Mm. And 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 also you're limited by by body shape and body type, right? So there's some certain people they just need to look at weights and they put on a lot of muscle, right? Think think Polynesian guys, mm-hmm. right? Um and there are other people that it, it's a lot harder for them to put on muscle. So it is quite hard to put on significant amounts of muscle. But the key thing is that we want to be going into older age with a reserve of muscle, right? right. Because we will lose it despite our best efforts. And, and, and this is so important for people to understand, is that if you are 65 years old, the seventh biggest killer is falls where people fall over and they break a pelvis or they break a hip and about half of them are dead within five years, right? When you get to 75, it's the fifth biggest killer. And it comes because of two things. Number one, we lose our fast twitch muscle fibers and we lose bone mineral density, right? And they're linked. Um, Walking, doesn't do anything for bone mineral density. You need mechanical force. Running does. Mm-hmm. Lifting weights is awesome for bone mineral density and preserving that bone mass. But it's your fast twitch fibers. And this is when I used to train personal trainers. I'd say the most important thing for older adults is power training, right? And people don't understand when I say that word, P-O-W-E-R, power. It's like, it's like I'm playing golf, mm-hmm. but power training. And, and people go, whoa, whoa, hold on a minute, power? That's for, that's for athletes, if you think about it, par equals work done divided by time, which is force times distance divided by time. Mm-hmm. So you either have a, a really high force or you move it quickly. So if you're walking down the street and you trip, the ability for you to quickly regain your foothold or to put your hand out and stop yourself from falling requires fast twitch muscle fibers, mm-hmm. right? They are the ones that we lose first. So that is why, particularly as you get into your 40s, it is really important that you're doing power training. And, and then, as, particularly as you get into your 50s, we need to be doing balance training and agility training. So the mix is then going to shift mm-hmm. a little bit. And, and actually, a lot of people are surprised when I say this. After you hit 50, you need to do more exercise, not less. Mm-hmm. Because your genes have given up. They don't care. And and you've actually got to work harder. Three to eight percent, three to eight
1: percent per decade. Per decade from the age of from the from your mid twenties, right? From the mid twenties from from, from peak muscle. So this kind of speaks to the importance of of starting resistance training early. Absolutely, trying to like have a good amount of muscle mass going into those. And
0: you know what? There's a real misnomer. My twelve year old is doing resistance training. My twelve
1: year old boy. Yeah there's a I guess people think about stunting right yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. and 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 it's a complete misnomer you know there's certain exercises that you 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 should be doing or should should not not mm-hmm. be doing loading lots of weight but but really when i'm training with oscar it's more about his neuromuscular system right Um, It it is about um, those nerve pathways into the muscle and and that becoming more efficient. And then Mm -hmm. when he then um, starts to go through his strength phase, which is around 14, 15, depending on when they hit puberty, then he's going to be really primed for putting on muscle and developing power and all of Mm -hmm. those sorts of things, right? So um, I think
1: definitely starting early is really key. And so, coming back to that question about women and and hit training, it sounds yes. like what you're saying is there there there's no reason to fear hit training, yeah. but rather than you know smashing yourself doing that every single day, think about having some resistance training in there and I do see i think one thing that I definitely have um have experience with working with um with women is often doing a lot of hit training, yeah. And being highly stressed in their life as well, and underfueled. Yes, yeah, and, right. Yeah, yeah. And the recovery is terrible, and they're they're feeling very depleted. So yeah, I actually, if we if we think about that, right, and, and if
0: we think about it, particularly if I've, I've I've got a lot of stress in my life, right, and and on top of that, you know, you might be working, having kids, you're doing on average more housework than the man, right, mm. and and that's the case in my house, and I'm guilty of that, but so and women generally particularly if they're mothers tend to be givers right they mm-hmm. tend to give 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 uh, and they don't have time for self time and then they're going oh i don't have time for exercise so i'm just going to go and do hit cuz i want to get the best bang from from my buck and then, if you're not recovering and you're not fueling properly, right? And then it comes to menopause. There's changes in hormones that make you put on weight. So you're you're further tweaking down your food and trying to up your exercise. You can just run yourself into the grind, right? So, so from that context, if you've got all of those different stressors, mm-hmm. um, is make sure yes, do maybe one session of hit training, and then the other ones dial it back a little bit, mm-hmm. right? Do some do some strength training that isn't as 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 intense, right? It it used to be that every workout that I did was super intense. Now I've just learnt the value, and it's only it's only taking me fifteen years. I used to work with a guy called Ian O'Dwyer, who is a brilliant guy in terms of his ability to get people to move really well, right? I've seen a number of people who were told by their orthopaedic surgeon they needed to have and um, replacements, joint replacements, they go and see OD, and, and got better really, really quickly. His stuff was just all about moving the, the fascia as well as the muscle, right? So, uh, particularly as you get older and we're sitting lots, that, that just movement training, yoga and other forms, functional flexibility, becomes really really important because if you're not doing that stuff and we're sitting lots and we're stressed our muscles tighten up we get all sorts of trigger points through those muscles we get injuries then we can't move right and then if you can't move them that we're laying down more fascia connective tissue and it gets really stuck up then you get all hunched over and you move less and less so Particularly, you've got to start to then become quite smart and make sure that you're doing those mobility, rather, whether it is a functional movement class or you're doing yoga, like some forms of yoga are great. And you see how many professional athletes
1: um, enhance the longevity of their careers from doing that sort of stuff. So when you think about sort of exercise overall, you're thinking about cardiorespiratory fitness, yes, which ties into the VO2 yep. max. Um, you're thinking about, I guess, aerobic base a little bit with the yep. steady state stuff. Yep. Resistance training. Yes. And then this stability mobility piece.
0: Stability mobility piece, yeah. Mm-hmm. Particularly as as you come older. And that that really plays into the quality of life stuff, right? There's a lot of people, I'll have seen them, you'll have seen them. Um And uh, Jim Jim Ratz who left a shitload of weight, and and by the time they get in their 50s and 60s they cannot move mm-hmm. right they cannot move or you see you see a lot of foodie players and stuff like that that have got busted knees and shoulders and that that just becomes really important so i've actually modified my training now that i'm in my 50s where i'm building in more of that mobility flexibility right. training and I, and i like to talk about to people about movement snacks and this is one of the great gifts of the pandemic is that a lot of people are working from home, right? And I say to people, a really important thing is stop thinking about, I need to go to the gym to do exercise. Right beside my desk, I've got a kettlebell and club clubbells, right? And uh, on a regular basis, I will get off my arse and I'll do 30 seconds of kettlebell swings and some clubbells. And what I'm doing by doing that is I'm, I'm getting up, I'm correcting my posture, I'm getting blood flow and oxygen to my brain I'm burning up stress hormones, right? Stress hormones are there to make you fight or flight, fight or run away. Mm -hmm. It's when we sit all day long with the stress of work that then it switches over into cortisol production, right? So a really important thing in this message is to have lots of movement snacks throughout the day where you just get off your arse and you move, right? Mm -hmm. Do 30 seconds to a minute of high-intensity exercise and then just, you know, stretch, move around, just get your body mobile and stuff like that. And then take some, drink some water, do a minute of box breathing or resonant frequency breathing and then get back to work. That's like taking your brain and your body and plugging it into the wall to get a recharge. And I think not enough people think about this. They think I have to go to the gym mm-hmm. uh, in order to do exercise. You can accumulate a huge amount um, if you just have those
1: regular little movement snacks. Love it. The movement snacks, you got your uh, steady state once a week. Yep. Trying to get one or two of those hit yep. workouts in. A couple of resistance training sessions. Yeah. And then on top of that, focusing on some mobility and stability. Um, it sounds like a lot, but I think once you put that down onto paper, it's, it's not that much.
0: It's not, it's not that much. And I think what we've just talked about, you know, that's about 150 minutes. That's about two and a half hours a week.
1: The neuroscience piece is interesting though, right? And behavior change. And, yes. and I think that probably get you back on. Let's go through oh, that. Me,
0: me. We, we could talk about that right. for days. Because our
1: ancestors, they didn't have to sort of sit down and, and necessarily make this decision about exercising. Movement was, was requirement for survival.
0: Absolutely. And, and this is the thing that I said in, in, in my book that's just about to be released, Death by Comfort. If you have a job that requires you to move and be on your feet. I think that's worth tens of thousands of dollars a year extra versus a job where you're sitting all day long. Right. Yeah, we've created these conveniences that are killing us. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and that prolonged sitting, like, mm-hmm. I mean, we talked a lot about exercise. One of the most important things that you can do is minimize your sitting, right? Just get the money. It's, stay off the piss for two or three nights and buy yourself a sit-to-stand workstation, Mm -hmm. right? So that you can reduce the amount of hours that you are sitting. and Because we know that sitting is the new smoking, and that's not an over-dramatization, right? The inactivity physiology, like when you sit for 30 minutes or more at a time, right? We're both sitting right now, and, and there are massive changes in gene expression that are going on. That, that affect our health in really negative ways. So one of the most important things that people can do is just break up your sitting, mm. just get off your arse, ideally every half an hour and, and just
1: activate your metabolism.
0: Mm.
1: Some great, great knowledge. Thank you, Paul. This has been incredible. Um, I wish we had more time. To continue mm. this but i know that you got to jump on a, a flight more sitting so maybe you can do, do some star jumps after this absolutely um but there's there's clearly a lot more that we can delve into so i i mean it that let's make this an open conversation um come back and join me again round two and see where we go
0: yeah i'd absolutely love to hopefully there are um some good takeaways mm. that, that that people can have And I think just to preempt the conversation around behavior change, I think it's thinking about, stop thinking about exercise as what you look like. You need to think about exercise as a fundamental to your biology. And also is think about how you feel after you've exercised compared to days when you don't exercise,
1: right? That's the way that we need to start thinking about this stuff. Beautifully put. If, if folks would like to find you online or you mentioned your podcast earlier, if they want to, want to check that out, um, where should we send them? We'll, we'll put all this in the show notes along with any of the, the studies that you've mentioned.
0: Yeah. So, um, that my podcast called the mind, body, brain project podcast, um, my website, au. Instagram at pi for performance Institute and my book is coming out it's on pre-order now it's called death by comfort why modern life is killing us and what we need to do about it amazing look forward to reading it thanks awesome thanks
1: mate Cheers. thank you for joining me for this episode and your interest in science-based conversation i hope you enjoyed it and found the information covered interesting and instructive if you did and you'd like to show your support for the show please subscribe to our youtube channel where you can stay up to date with new episodes and watch them in video format. Yes, the full-length videos. Please also consider subscribing to the show on the Spotify and or Apple Podcast app, wherever you enjoy listening to podcasts. You can also leave a review on Apple or Spotify. Again, a great way to support the show and make our content more discoverable for others to enjoy and learn from. If you have any comments about the episodes, suggestions for future episodes, including guests you'd like to see on the show, or questions that you'd like to have answered, please leave those in the comments section on YouTube. I, myself, and my team will take note of these comments when planning future episodes. Finally, the best way to support the show and receive discounts on products we love is by checking out our sponsors at theproof.com forward slash friends. Enjoy your week, stay well, and I look forward to catching you in the next episode.